0: marking hymn number 514 that hymn that brother harold has asked us to mark to be used as a song of encouragement just a bit later in the service this evening what a refreshing opportunity and delightful one at that we have at the close as the shades of this day have now gathered about us to appreciate the solace and the comfort the encouragement and the simple fellowship that we can enjoy in the blessed nature of the gospel The power and beauty of fellowship one with another as those interested in enjoying those precious climbs of heaven one sweet day. And tonight, to be lifted upward by an appreciation of loving the truth. That's the title of the lesson that I've selected, and you might have noted in the reading from the 19th verse of Zechariah 8, that that's verbatim the presentation that the prophet, by virtue of the wisdom of God, made on that occasion. Tonight, as we take an interesting look, though, at some of the features and aspects of that passage, we will be led, I hope, to appreciate it a bit more deeply than may otherwise have been obvious, because that rather interesting eighth chapter of Zechariah will really be the core of our lesson tonight. Some introductory thoughts that move us upon the way toward its consideration would be these. The very mention of the word truth... Those five letters, T-R-U-T-H, it does occur rather frequently in the sacred text. A grand total of some 235, perhaps a few more throughout the entirety of both Old and New Testament. That is in the King James translation, admittedly. But of that number, over half of them are in the New Testament over half of that totality of the presentation of the word truth actually fall within the much briefer and much shorter New Testament books. That alone would be a tremendous appreciation for asserting the importance of truth. Might it be noted, though, in light of that idea, that there is much contained in the word of God as it relates to truth you and I could study at length and attempt to plumb the depths of what would be the mind of God relative to the truth. And tonight, we will look at a few of those ideas, but all housed within the confines of Zechariah chapter 8. It is a rather amazing and at the same time tragic observation that the truth has fallen on hard times, at least in general. And I say that from two perspectives. On the one hand, There are those, of course, in the world who really have virtually no regard for truth at all. They are not interested in it. They far prefer to live the way that they like to, regardless what one may say the Bible proclaims or not. They are primarily, as sad as that may be, not the greatest of sadnesses relative to that idea. Because to even heighten that idea, believe it or not, there are some who claim to be the defenders of the truth who claim to rest squarely upon its wonder. And yet even they are those who really, by what they teach, are such that the truth has fallen on hard times from their lips. Now, that's a shocking set of irony. But as shocking as it is, it's eternally tragic. To say that the truth has fallen on hard times should be a constant reminder to us to safeguard our lives and to safeguard our families and to strive to exert the powerful influence for truth that God would have us do. Ever understanding the fact that that very truth, the nature of it, I hope in the five lessons that we're about to study will remind us wonderfully, powerfully, and practically about what a role that that truth can play in our life. To turn to Zechariah 8, isn't it amazing that the word truth occurs in the book of Zechariah only in one chapter? and it is in chapter 8. One will search through the 14 chapters of Zechariah in vain to locate verbatim that word, except in the 8th chapter, and it occurs five times in that chapter. We will learn a lesson from each of the five occurrences, and as we study that perhaps just a small token of background material could be of great benefit to us to appreciate the thoroughness of the book of Zechariah. As we know, it is one of the minor prophets, nestled somewhat near the end of the Old Testament. However, it is an abundantly powerful book from several angles, not the least of which is this. The children of Israel, as we well remember, had chosen to deviate from God's plan. And because of that deviation, God promised them that when that occurred, I will take you from that land that I've given you. I will force you into captivity and there you will be punished for turning aside from me and for rebelling against me. That's a paraphrase of the latter half of Deuteronomy 28 and also the latter half of Leviticus 26. The time eventually came, though it would take hundreds of years, when in fact that's precisely what the children of Israel did. Though they thought they were the precious and chosen ones perpetually and that God would never forsake them. They live to understand that that's not the way it was. God's covenant with them was based upon the premise that as long as you are faithful to my commandments, and as long as you will obey what I have commanded, I will protect, provide, and preserve you. But when you depart, all those gifts and blessings I will remove. They did not like to think about that, and quite often they rebelled against the prophets that God sent them, those whom he attempted to draw them back to repentance. Ultimately, in 586 B.C., the final straw was dropped. On that occasion, all the prophecies of Jeremiah came to pass, for on that occasion the mighty military of Babylon overran Jerusalem and Judah and took off into captivity the people of God. They went off into the enemy nation. Upon that occasion, not only were they taken captive, but the precious and the city by them recognized as holy was ransacked. That immaculate temple was burned to the ground. That one that David had made preparation for, but the one that Solomon had actually overseen the construction of, they burned it. That had been the place where there was the altar where they could offer their offerings to God. That was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was the place where the altar of incense was. It was the place where the golden laver was placed. It was the location where the table of showbread and all the other pieces of furniture. All of it was gone. Here was a people now far removed from home, but God had just as surely promised them that that captivity will not be permanent. Seven decades will pass and I will grant you the beautiful opportunity and blessing of returning to the precious city and reestablishing your national life and worship. That finally occurred under the leadership of the Persian monarch named Cyrus. And when he gave that decree in Ezra chapter 1, thankfully thousands of those Jews packed up their belongings in Babylon and headed back to the homeland, the one that they had so lovingly known before. That brings us to the first three chapters of Ezra. One of the first things that these people did upon returning was to begin a reconstruction of the temple. They laid the foundation, but at that point, the work stalled. It stalled for a couple of rather interesting reasons. First of all, there were enemies to the work. There were those who did not want to see Jerusalem rebuilt. To so much so that they in fact beseeched the king of that area and he wrote a decree that forbade them to rebuild that city. Thus, that's one reason, but it wasn't the only one. We learn in the book of Haggai that yet another reason was the people were apathetic. They were indifferent to the work of God. It seems as though they had lost their fervor and interest. They didn't care anymore. Thus, the work stalled for over 15 years. There was a foundation with nothing on it. In the midst of this apathy and in the midst of this indifference, in Ezra chapter 5 verse 1, we read that God took action. He raised up two prophets. One of them's name was Haggai, the other was Zechariah. God commissioned these prophets, You go and stir up my people so that they will reinvigorate the work and complete the temple and again re their national worship and life. We read in Ezra chapter 5 that that's exactly what happened. Haggai was first. He preceded Zechariah by four months. He began, to, in fact, to encourage and exhort the people, and quite frankly, he rebuked them rather directly. So much so that in verses 4 through 6 of Haggai chapter 1, he said, You have paneled your own houses, but the work of God lays waste. He said, Consider your ways. That stirred the people to work. Interestingly enough, in less than 21 days, they accomplished more than they had in previous 15 years. When the work of God is allowed to ferment in our heart and lead us to action, great things can be done. Three weeks. Not only that, it might be of no if they actually completed that temple in less than five years from the time Haggai urged them to do so. Five years and it was done. That's a testimony to what priority can do, isn't it? A testimony to what can be accomplished when our mind is attuned to the frequency of God. The interesting thing is, though, as we mentioned, Zechariah was one of the prophets laboring also in that word. In the 14 chapters of Zechariah, we find an interesting apocalyptic book. A book that, in fact, is presented in symbols and signs and visions. There are some who've labeled it a difficult book. It's interesting to notice, though, that in certain portions of that book, Zechariah directly mentions the moral condition of the people. There were things that were lacking. There were things that were not as they ought to have been. And as a part of that, in this eighth chapter, he comes directly to address the truth. God's people had slipped from their appreciation of the truth. They didn't view it as the way that they ought to have, and some five times in this single chapter, reference is made, commandments are given, and emphasis is laid on the truth. I'd invite you to turn with me then to that eighth chapter, and let's look at those five occurrences and notice some interesting things that are stated about them and how that they can be so useful and meaningful even for us today. The first one occurs in the third verse of that chapter, Zechariah 8. Verse number 3, and in that text we read the following. Thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. We find that first occurrence of that word in this chapter, the city of truth. Isn't it amazing that the God of heaven made a special reference on this occasion that it would be Jerusalem that would be recognized and identified and even termed as the city of truth. Notice that even here an interesting statement is made about the fact that if Jerusalem were to be known as the city of truth, surely that would indicate that its people would be a people who prized the concept of purity and who prized the notion of respectable kind of living, they appreciated what it meant to discuss the truth and to live in accordance to it. Might it be noted in the opening aspects of that verse that that was predicated upon something. Let's note again what the first two phrases of that verse were. I am returned unto Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. The notion that Jerusalem would be called the city of truth was based upon or predicated predicated upon the fact that God was among them. There can be no truth apart from God. It's just that simple. Man may seek, seek for and search for and synthesize all he wishes. He may think about and ponder and consider all he desires, but if he bases all of that only upon the extent of his own knowledge, And in the extent of his own understanding, it shall not be the ultimate truth. It is still a truth, isn't it? That in fact, God must be the predecessor of it because he is a God of truth. Reads Deuteronomy 32, verse number 4. Not many days, you see, before his own death, Moses lifted high the name of God and said to Israel that Jehovah God is the God of truth. It still remains that way today. Any nation, any city, any community that would be known for the truth must base their life, their character, their laws ultimately founded upon the thoroughness and power of the truth of God. Any other thing, and it shall not be known as a city of or nation of truth. It was a grand blessing to be pronounced upon Jerusalem here when God said, You have returned from captivity, but this city that you're now in the midst of rebuilding shall be called a city of truth. Isn't it an interesting and loving desire to think about our nation or Cookville, Tennessee or perhaps Gainsborough as being known as a city of truth? We should ever desire it to be so, We should live our lives individually in the essence of setting an example that others might appreciate our love for that truth. We've mentioned the truth on a number of occasions so far. Might we now identify that more carefully? We've asserted that God must be in its midst. But isn't it true that the Lord acclaimed in John 17 verse 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. That now pinpoints it clearly, doesn't it? In our age and in our time, if a city, a family, a nation, any other are to be known as an individual or a nation of truth, they must be founded upon the premises of the Word of God. Those 27 books of the New Testament is God's law for this present era, isn't it? It is His truth. There shall never be another. Maybe you and I have often noted the sadness with which many seem to desire some companion volume to this one. They like a book of Mormon, a Koran, the Vedas, or some such other document. But there is no companion to the Holy Bible. It is the only sacred word of God. He did not provide any appendices to it. There shall be no sequels. This book stands alone as it is, doesn't it? In fact, in 2 Peter 1, verse number 3, we read the text that all things that pertain into life and godliness have been presented. To note the thoroughness of that verse, it actually reads in totality as this, doesn't it? According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain into life and godliness, all of it, all of it has been revealed. The city of truth then prompts us to appreciate that you and I, as citizens of the church, are in fact those founded upon the pillar and ground of the truth. Reads First Timothy 3.15. One of the sacred charges given to the church is that she must and always shall be the pillar and ground of the truth. If individuals in the Pippin community of Putnam County want to know the truth, this ought to be the place that they'll come to find it. They won't find it anywhere else. They won't find it in any denomination, for the Lord never established any of them. They won't find it in the thinking of what happens at the courthouse, though we may hope that that which is done there is wise and is in accordance to proper uses of resources. The ultimate truth, if anyone should desire to know it, should be exemplified in the lives of you and me, those who are the church here at the Pippin Congregation. But not only is verse 3 a highlight of the beauty of truth as it related to Jerusalem, might we look at the next occurrence of truth also in this chapter. It's in verse 8. That verse reads as follows, And I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. What a beautiful promise to these people who had not too long in the past been captives. They'd been forcefully removed from their land. Now they had been able to blessedly return. And upon so doing, now God says in this verse, verse number 8, I will bring them. They will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. That precious city that still lays basically in ruins, it will be rebuilt. They will enjoy this place And furthermore, as the verse closes, they shall be my people. They may have thought that God had cast them off. He allowed us to go into captivity. He doesn't care about us any longer. We have been distantly removed from Him. God says, these will be my people. Furthermore, notice the description, I will be their God in two things, in truth and in righteousness. God did have a desire that these people live in a particular fashion, didn't He? He didn't allow them the luxury, if we should call it that, of living any way they wanted. If He was to be their God and they were to be His people, it had to match hand in hand with truth on the one hand and righteousness on the other. One cannot correctly claim to be a friend of God to be a member of his family, and yet to live habitually and righteously. They do not go hand in hand, do they? It does not work that way. In fact, in that set of verses that we have studied on Wednesday evening, in Romans 1, verses 16 and following, we there read, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For, notice verse 18, For the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men is revealed from heaven against all of those things. God's wrath revealed against it. Here God makes note through Zechariah that I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. I might submit that that same relationship abides in His church today. We are His people. He is our God in truth and in righteousness. A number of passages I would ask you to consider with me as it relates to that. In Romans the 8th chapter, verses 14 to 17, that very beautiful description of those who are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, who have the precious privilege of calling upon God as our Father. Notice also in Galatians, as well as in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. You might take note of the Galatian letter, chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, in terms of the same thing. But in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 16 and following, is a direct statement that as you and I live in truth, it makes demands that we separate ourselves from the ungodly influences of the world. He says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. We have a precious charge laid upon us, don't we? If we're to live in truth and God is to be our God, the demands for us in that way are, that has qualifications for us. It is foolish, isn't it, to make the claim, well, I'm living in truth, but yet it has no bearing in terms of the prescriptions of the Bible on our life. That doesn't make any sense, and it cannot be that way. Truth is very narrow. The way that leads to life everlasting, the way that is paved in truth, is a very narrow roadway. Our Lord affirmed in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. That pathway that is of the truth is a narrow, straightened way, difficult often to tread. But the end thereof is well worth the journey. The reward thereof well worth the intent of the truth that's involved in it. The people of God needed to be reminded first this city of Jerusalem It will be a city of truth, but that has demands for you. You must live righteously, truthfully, holily, according to the word that I shall reveal and will reveal through those prophets. That idea perhaps reminds us of 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. In that second chapter of that first epistle written by Paul to Timothy, we have that recognition that God would have all men to come into the knowledge of the truth. It is not the interested will of God that any should perish, that any should be lost, that any will be forever separated from Him. That was also true here in ancient Jerusalem, that they would be a citadel of truth, as a beacon if you please, to shine forth the glory of God's goodness to everyone who would come to know about the God of heaven. I might suggest we at Pippin have that opportunity too to be a bulwark of truth and faith that sends forth good seeds of influence wherever God may allow us to influence others. In the third place in this chapter, the third occurrence of that word truth, found in verse 16. Turning our attention to the 16th verse of Zechariah 8, beginning a new paragraph in that chapter, it reads, These are the things that ye shall do. Speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. May we never forget and may we never lose sight of the fact that from this verse alone we learn a rather valiant lesson. It's to be frankly admitted that there are many in our world who quite honestly believe that truth is a very abstract concept it perhaps is far removed from the practicality of daily life. It has to do with what one thinks, what one believes, and perhaps no more. That certainly wasn't the idea of God through Zechariah, was it? For he said, this is something to be spoken. Speak ye every man what, Zechariah? The truth with his neighbor. It is to impact even one's language, one's speech what it is that one chooses to say. Thus the truth is something that's very practical. It touches every moment really of every day of your life and mine, doesn't it? The powerful aspect and the real impact even to what you and I say and the way in which we might well say it. That word truth as it's used in that fashion no doubt reminds us of a number of New Testament ways that it seems to be used very similarly. In fact, to quash this idea of truth as being something abstract, very remote and abstruse and nothing more, notice that Jesus himself said in John 4.24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him. How, Lord? In spirit and in truth. The truth even is to be the governing guide to proper worship. And if it isn't, the worship is not proper. If it isn't, the worship is vain. Reads Matthew fifteen verse nine. May we thus appreciate whether it be the language we employ? And isn't it still a fascinating thought that the Apostle Paul quoted Zechariah eight sixteen verbatim in Ephesians four twenty five? And thus today our speech is still to be in truth. But that notion of truth is to guard our worship, the things that are done, the way that they're done. The truth is that far reaching. It is that impressive, isn't it? So far, the concept of truth may thus remind us of that text in Ephesians 1.13. On that occasion, as Paul wrote to the Ephesian brethren, he said that they had been sanctified and that they, in fact, were those who had placed their cope in the Word of truth. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And doesn't it describe you and me as well? There was a day in our life, if we're Christians, when we placed our hope in the precious hands of the one who delivered truth. We trusted that he meant what he said, and he said what he meant. We trusted the reality of sin that he had described. We trusted the forgiveness available through the blood of the Savior. And we did exactly what he said. We just like those Ephesians had thus taken hold of the day of our salvation and Paul described it beautifully as that day when the word of truth you accepted and you believed it and you obeyed it. Today, may we never thus think that truth is something that's only mental, perhaps nothing more. Truth is realistic. It's practical. It is momentary day by day. As that truth of God's word is that pervasive as it reaches that far into my life and yours and leaves no stone of life unturned, that element Zechariah mentioned a long time ago. The notion of that aspect of truth hastens us to the next occurrence in the same verse. Also in verse 16, it says, Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. As if we had missed the point before namely that truth is to be something that's put into practice, now God through Zechariah says truth is to be executed. The word execute, we know, can take on a couple of different meanings depending on its context. We can talk about executing a criminal, meaning to put that individual to death. But we also know the word execute means to put something into practice. To execute, for instance, some measure of law. In fact, when the Congress signs a bill into law and the President signs it, there is an executive decree that brings that law now into practice. It is now to be executed in terms of the laws of the land uphold it. And peace officers are to defend it and to, in fact, penalize those who violate it. Truth, also, God says through Zechariah, is to be executed, put into practice, implemented and applied to the various aspects of our life. It's an amazing thing to notice, though, that he links it with the word judgment. Execute the judgment of truth. We might well think about the occurrences in the Old Testament that no doubt were partly in the mind of God and Zechariah as this statement was made. It had long since become the case in ancient Israel that the execution of judgment had fallen on hard times. We encountered in so many books, such as Judges, Micah, Amos, as well as a host of others, where people in Israel had reached the point in their life to where they would break and bend the laws. And those that were supposed to be the judges of the land, the defenders of truth, would be bribed, They would let that happen. They'd turn their eye to defend those that were rich enough to pay them off. And they would ignore the actual rights of judgment of those that were the victim. God didn't turn a blind eye to that. He said, in ancient Israel, in this new refurbished Jerusalem, as you speak every man truth with his neighbor, that means the judges are to execute judgment and truth. They ought not be accepting bribes. They ought not be turning an eye and defending those that can pay them off. They need to be defending truth. If only the judges of our land were quicker to do that. Oh, there's no doubt many of them are trying to do the best that they can. But isn't it sad When from time to time the law catches those that are willing to take bribes, to defend the cause of those who really are the guilty ones, and to turn a blind eye to those that really are the innocent victims and who need to be the ones whose cause is heard and whose cause is defended. We again need to return this nation of ours to be a nation that's more strongly upholding the execution of truth. We have, of course, of recent note, elected a president, May we ever pray that when he selects judges, he will select individuals who have a stern desire to uphold the truth, who will not dissuade one side or the other from it, but who will strive to not only demand that it be brought before their case, but will be swift to punish those who violate the truth. That kind of idea will only make a stronger nation, a nation that will be far more likely to be called a city A nation of truth. The thoughts and aspects of verse number sixteen perhaps reminds us of so many ways that word truth is employed in the sacred scriptures. In Deuteronomy 16, 19, Judges chapters 17 to 21, we gain an impression of what happens when a nation is no longer a nation that executes judgment. We see one of the most sordid, ungodly, dark and evil pictures in all of the Bible in those closing five chapters of Judges. And why was it so? Because they had lost sight of executing truth. May we not allow that to happen in our land. Because if we do, we shall crumble just as quickly as ancient Israel did. But rather in Proverbs 7 verse 23, we learn on that occasion about buying the truth and selling it not. It is that precious, reach Proverbs 23, verse 23. The realization of that text perhaps takes us to the realization that even in religion, this matter of truth is to be so swiftly applied. For might we recall in 1 Peter 1, verse 22, what is it that purifies your soul and mine? He says, through the obedience to the truth, through obeying the truth... May we thus never think that there's any other means or process whereby the soul is cleansed and purified. It is in the obedience to the truth. Thus, as you and I seek to execute judgment and truth in a spiritual way in our life, may we look at the very last occurrence of truth in this chapter. The word occurs one more time in verse 19. In Zechariah 8 verse 19, the text reads, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love the truth and peace. The chapter closes with one of the most fundamental ideas necessary to the free practice and the free defense of the truth. It has to do with the disposition of the heart toward it. You see, truth in Israel, truth in Jerusalem would never come to be justified. It would never come to be practiced. It would never come to be the single element in the judgment if the people didn't love it. For people won't do what they don't love to do. That helps us see that there's really no difference today. We see that in the world about us as individuals will practice and pursue anything their hearts desire. Thus, if it is the desire of the heart to be a truthful heart, to be based upon and to pursue fully the truth, the truth will be an essential ingredient in a powerful part of that person's life. To love the truth I find it rather impressive that the Greek word that the Greek translators used as they translated the Hebrew of this verse into Greek was the word agape. Agapao is the actual verb in its tense that appears here. And that's that same verb form that appears so often in the New Testament. When we are admonished to love the church and to love the Lord and to love His work, we are to love the truth in that same way to love the wonderful, powerful, pervasive, and beautiful truth of God. When you and I have that sincere love for it, it will be a part of our life, for we will demand it to be so. We will order our speech and our thoughts and our deeds and actions according to it, and we will insist it in the members of our family to the extent we can. We will long for it in the church of which we're a part. We will seek nothing else for the very matter of purity of our souls. Love the truth, God said through Zechariah. That leads us to appreciate a rather interesting set of thoughts that we'll use to close our lesson this evening. For when God said through Zechariah to love the truth, might we notice that that love was a very simple and powerful statement. Notice the truth of this chapter was not predicated on convenience, nor was it predicated on any other particular thoughts of the mind. You see, today, it is a simple fact many choose to basically base truth on convenience. It's what I like and what's happy for me. It's what won't cause me to have to change much. Truth isn't that way. The truth is the truth whether I bend my stubborn will to it or not. The truth is the truth whether I succumb my spirit to it or not. You see, convenience never has determined truth. What it is that particular choices of speculation of the human heart have never determined truth. And neither was it the case here in Zechariah 8. God laid forth to that people precisely what he demanded of them. The terms were made by him, not by Israel. They could accept them or they could choose not to, but if they chose not to, the terms of it demanded the punishment that God would reap upon them because of it. That hasn't changed any, has it? God allows us to make the same choices today. He sets the truth before us with all the rewards and blessings. But he says, ultimately, the choice is yours as to whether you will bend your will to it, relinquish control of your life to the Savior and follow it. But know this much, if you choose to refuse it, it will still be what judges you. And furthermore, I will, in fact, pronounce judgment upon you because of your failure to heed it. Jesus did say in John twelve forty eight, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. This word that is the truth shall indeed be the standard by which you and I shall be judged. One of the things that these people in ancient Israel needed thus to ask themselves, and a question that we must ask ourselves too, Do I love the truth? Do I really love the truth? Am I willing to sacrifice anything else in life in defense of it? Am I willing to set aside any of the predispositions of my mind and heart in the pursuit of that truth? For if not, I love something else more than I love that truth. There is no other conclusion that can be reached. Isn't it sad then to revisit some of the first comments we made? There are those for whom the truth has fallen on hard times because apparently they don't love it the way they claim to. They have turned aside to speak and talk about and practice something else. We should be so thankful for bold prophets like Zechariah who set before Israel the truth of God and did not err one way or the other from it. May we be thankful for God's word today that sets the truth before us. And it is still the case. Jesus said, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Freedom from sin can't be had any other way. Freedom from the evil influence of Satan comes no other means but other than through that one. And thus, in summary or in conclusion tonight, we may perhaps say that we have visited five texts in Zechariah 8. We have seen the precious privilege of being a city of truth. We have noted the power of God that we worship in truth. We have gone on to see in the further aspects of that chapter the injunction to speak the truth. In the last two lessons, we have noticed also the judgment that relates to truth. And finally, the injunction that's ours and the command too to love the truth. Do you and I love God's Word enough to freely obey it? If you haven't become a Christian, the only way that that can happen is if you will obey that truth that He has revealed. He asks that you do this, and as He commands and demands that it is, turn aside in your life in the following steps. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. That means turn aside from them. Truly desire to make retribution physically, if that's something that can be done. But you must, in mind, recognize the evil of that way of life which you formerly followed. Turn in mind from it. Desire to practice it no longer. Then confess the sweet name of Jesus as the Son of God. And very simply and humbly be buried in water, baptized for the forgiveness of sins. If we could help one or more in the accomplishment of that tonight, what a joyous day it would be for both you and us and the angels in heaven, Luke 15, 7. And if though there be one who has strayed aside from the pathway of truth, notice that roadway still leads to the same place. You need to jump back on it. Come back to that way of life. Don't continue to tread on this way that leads to gloominess and darkness. This way spoken of in Zephaniah 1, verses 16 to 18 is a way that leads nowhere good. Come back on this blessed pathway that leads to everlasting life. If we could assist you tonight by prayer, by encouragement, by edification for your way to return to that truth, we'd be honored to help you. But we need you to let us know that if you would, in haste, while together we stand and while we sing.